0: For me, my take on this one was I was I was kind of blown away that the soporific tearjerker of an album. It's like these English guys found a way to inject some racism into it. It's like were, <laughs> it's like how how can we get some racist stuff in here?
1: Hello, hello and welcome to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where lifelong friends and musicians go through the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, break them down, give you some really great insight on them, give an opinion as to whether or not they belong on that list. We are very excited this week to be digging into the Bee Gees Trafalgar pre-disco BGS. If you are already familiar with this album, great. Let's dive right in. We have this week, as always, a group of musicians, critics, lifelong friends who are getting together to talk about this album. I am Tom Monahan, bass player, love harmony. Probably going to talk about that a lot. Up next, we're going to have James. James, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: I've been playing keys for, I don't know, say uh, 15, 20 years, something like that. Less, you know, I'll probably have less to say in terms of the vocal harmonies, honestly. But that's, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a
1: negative thing. (laughs) Everybody loves (laughs) harmony, James.
0: (laughs) It is true. Everyone does love harmony.
1: I, I think that
0: my insights on this record are probably less musical and more long lines of the content of
1: the record. It's say. <laughs> foreshadowing. I like it.
2: <laughs> Phil, I think it's your turn.
3: So I'm Phil, uh, Phil Matarezi. I've played guitar for maybe 20 plus years, keyboards. And my comments are going to be focused primarily on the timpani. really want to talk about the timpani <laughs> use on this record
2: lush orchestration yeah it's lush is a good word for this one i'm rob played guitar for 20 years i on paper this seems like an album that i would really really like i like harmony i like the 70s and yet i have
1: complaints well talk about this album so rob mentioned the 70s this was released September 1971 in the US. It was released a couple months later in the UK for some reason. It was the ninth album by the Bee Gees. Album number nine, 1971. Pre-disco, nine albums. Uh, a little background on Bee Gees. They are primarily the Brothers Gibb, which I believe is where the name comes from, the Bee Gees. Yeah, I think so. so uh, formed in 1958. 1958, they formed this band. Now, here's the the thing that is uh, a little bit crazy, is that they were born on the Isle of Man to British parents. Barry was born first. He was born in 1946, which means that he was 12 when Bee Gees formed. And then... Robin and Maurice, they were twins. They were born in 1949. So, Robin, Maurice, and Barry Gibb, the three Gibb brothers, have always been the central core of the Bee Gees. Now, they started their first band in 1955, which is actually like right after they moved to Australia. Rob, we mentioned last week yeah. when we were uh, talking about doing this album, I thought that they were Australian. Apparently, they moved to Australia. In 1955 and spent a decent amount of time there. And that's how they sort of first formed their band was in Australia. We were
2: both right. I read that their first band was a skiffle band. Yeah. similar more to, to <laughs> Lennon and McCartney, right?
1: I had to look that up as well. Um, but yeah, like, I guess you can say that, like, they formed the band when, like, they were like 9 and 12. Either way. Benson. Yeah, basically, yeah, they're Hanson. It's funny because I I had them pegged as like uh, they were like the Aerosmith of their time where like they had uh, popularity and then they their popularity waned and then like a new thing came along and helped to bring their popularity back. For Aerosmith, it was MTV Music Videos where they came back into popularity because they made really good music videos. For the Bee Gees, it was disco. But we're talking about stuff before disco, all right? They got their start – in uh, you know, you got the first record contract, 1967. As you can probably imagine, 1967, a band of three brothers who can sing really well. Let's take a stab at who they were trying to sound like. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think they they they've moved back to Britain specifically. Because they wanted to be a part of the British Invasion, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. They were uh, They were very much trying to be the next Beatles. Interestingly enough, they failed in that mission. Uh, I would say they did fail in that mission. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later. I think that uh, Maurice does a pretty good Paul McCartney impression on the bass. But um, their first single, which is like... They they have a history of just naming their songs terribly, but the first single that they put out got a lot of play because DJs apparently thought that it was a new Beatles song, and <laughs> it, it, it was called "New York Mining Disaster, 1941."
3: <laughs> great idea, yeah, that's a great topic for a song. <laughs> that is the worst name for a song I've ever heard,
1: and it is extraordinarily literal. Like, it is, I listened to the song; it's that's exactly what it's about. There is no hidden meaning there. It's Talking about a mining disaster in New York in 1941, but it does sound pretty Beatles-esque. And apparently, at the time, like, what were the Beatles putting out in '67 that they were like, "Oh yeah, New York mining disaster 1941"? That's the logical progression of the Beatles. Sound. This is
2: like, why don't we do it in the "Road" era Beatles? I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it very much has a kind of like a Rubber Soul rip-off sound to it. Let's let's take a listen to that for a second because I just I, I was fascinated by this topic and how literal it was and how much it's clearly just a Beatles crib.
0: In the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see. It's just a photograph
3: of someone that I knew. Have you seen?
1: So, okay, so we're back. That was New York mining disaster 1941. The thing that jumped out to me, like right away, is, um, it kind of sounded like that song. Cause you like me though much and I like you. I think they um, literally used that exact same melody clip mm, in there at some point.
2: I think they like stealing melodies actually. Maybe we're going to talk about that. Maybe we're going to talk about that once or
0: twice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's how they got their start.
0: I just want to say that from listening to that clip a little bit, it really did give me the impression of the Beatles asleep at the wheel. It was like the Beatles <laughs> just kind of <laughs> z- zonked out while we were piloting this show.
1: <laughs> they got, they it's like if the Beatles got serious drug problems, that's what right. they started putting out.
2: <laughs> you you alluded to it, Tom, but how many – I mean, they have a, a heck of a lot of records before disco. Oh, Did yeah. you say
1: nine before the disco era? No, no, no. Nine before – Trafalgar is number nine. And then after Trafalgar, they put out more before they got to disco. So like Trafalgar came out to whom it may concern came out in 72 life in a tin can yep. came out in 73. And then Mr. Natural, which I believe was the first one. I think that had jive talking on it. What's the track list on that? No, I'm sorry. Mr. Natural is not even uh, disco era.
2: They were churning. They were churning these bad boys. Cool. Out. Yeah. 1975
1: to
3: 1979. At Eric Clapton's suggestion, moved uh, yeah. to Miami. No. Florida. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we brought same, this up same house. on the same house. That was
1: and that was when they did jive talking. They did jive talking. They got the disco beat when they went to uh, to four sixty one Ocean. Yeah,
2: ridiculous. Well, I just, I just ridiculous. I just when I was looking at their discography, I was thinking the Beatles were turning out albums at that clip, right in their heyday. Even and that only lasted for six years or whatever and they were amazing at it. I don't think, maybe the Bee Gees just thought they were good enough songwriters that that would work, but it, it didn't, it just doesn't. It suffers from that. One album every nine months, it's not a good idea.
1: So, this was, let's let's talk a little bit about Trafalgar, as we said, ninth album from the Bee Gees. A couple of things happened preceding this album that I think color a lot of what's on this album, and in some ways don't color it in, in ways that I thought would. So it was released in September 1971. Like, in mid-1969, Robin Gibb went solo. And was like, yeah, I've been doing this Bee Gees thing for too long. He decided he wanted to go solo. Robin Gibb, who is not credited with playing any instruments on right. these albums at all, just things, went solo. And surprise, surprise, guys. Mid-1969 to go solo, mid-1970. He's like, hey, guys, maybe we should do this <laughs> again. Maybe we should give another a crack at this. Well, I mean, they had missed.
0: He had missed an entire
1: album cycle, essentially. There, you know, like he could have made a B.G.'s record. In oh this. no, they, they did. Up. They recorded. No, they recorded an album without him called <laughs> called Cucumber Castle. Um, and you'll never guess. You will never guess who they got to replace Robin on uh, the album Cucumber Castle. Their other brother. Their sister, Leslie. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. It's <laughs> just like, do they have no friends? Is that what's going on here? Yeah, nine Castle. albums. Yeah.
0: I that is quite an image.
2: <laughs> I watched the so HBO recently put out a, a documentary about the Bee Gees and I watched some of it and they talked about this period and how Robin Gibb went on tour. He went to some like festival, some outdoor festival in New Zealand. He got booked there as a solo act, except when he showed up, that apparently the booker had told him the Bee Gees were gonna show up. So they're just like throwing tomatoes at him and Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, it's very awkward.
1: Nobody wants to just see Robin Gibbs solo material. Definitely not. I kind of wish, looking back, I kind of wish that we had listened to Cucumber
2: Castle instead of Trafalgar. <laughs> that option is still available to you.
1: That option is. <laughs> it'll be on the Spotify playlist. We'll pick a selection and put it on there. <laughs> so, anyway, they get back together. And it's like, you know, mid-1970, they're back together. They record this in like January to April of 1971. The other thing that happened, which you guys are definitely going to feel in the content of this, is that Barry Gibb is going through a divorce in 1970. Um, I, so hold on. I had the exact dates here. Barry Gibb was going through a divorce and he got divorced in 1970. All right. So Barry Gibb, 1970, goes through a divorce. I think that you will uh, be able to tell From some of the content of these songs And in the interest of getting to the music And setting the stage for what this sounds like We're just going to play a clip Of the opening track on this album (laughs) Which, uh, again, I think speaks to the subject matter How can you mend a broken heart? Let's spin that one for the people real quick
0: I can think of
1: So how can you mend a broken heart is clearly he's he is all torn up inside. He went through a divorce of a woman that he had met when he was very young and they had gotten married and he was clearly very in love. And, you know, he's just a broken man. Oh, no, wait. He had already met a woman and remarried before this album even came out. (laughs) Already met a woman and remarried before this album came out. There's like wistful divorce songs on there, but he met a woman who was like a former like Miss Scotland and married her like four months later. And to his credit, they are still together. But like he has a bunch of songs about like how his heart is all broken, and now he's like in a new relationship and a happy one because they're already married. <laughs> I was. <laughs> it's it's a pretty
0: hard sell to write a wistful a wistful treatise, a look back at, on divorce. It's pretty, it's honestly being in the midst of a divorce right now, you know, I wouldn't, I would never in a, in a million years, even if pressed by my brothers, it <laughs> theoretically, <laughs> when I'm in a band, theoretically with my brothers, I think that it would be a hard sell to be like, you why don't you just, why don't you write a, like a kind of soppy, kind of soppy, drippy one about your ex-wife. How does that sound?
2: Now, hold on. I, there is one, at least one truly great divorce album in Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. I think the challenge that, that Tom's putting out there is the evil eye that your new wife is going to be giving you the entire <laughs> time. You're coming, you're strumming these songs on the acoustic guitar over, <laughs> over cocktails.
1: How Can You Mend a Broken Heart was their first number one U.S. single. They had to play that shit all the time. Maybe, yeah.
0: And How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? You marry Miss Scotland. That's, that's how you uh, do it.
1: Sure, Good okay. spin. it's an easy it's an easy yeah. formula. Good spin. So James, yeah, what were your overall impressions of this album? We're, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about how you commend a broken heart. Uh, but like, what'd you think of that song? What'd you think about the album? Well, I mean, my overall impression of the
0: album, I'd say, it was kind of like a, a sleepy pop schlock outing. A little bit of sad bastard music, kind of asleep at the wheel. Sad bastard music. It was like a B cut of Elton John falling asleep after taking Quaaludes. Is kind of my like. <laughs> He got Elton John really drugged up, got him to like bring bring out like the worst songs in his songbook and kind of record a, a record of them with like a p- patina of sadness slathered on top is kind of my that's more or less my impression of the record. All right.
1: Phil, what'd you think about this record?
3: Overall, I mean, I think, you know, we'll we'll unpack it as we get into these later tunes, but I think there are some interesting things. I definitely think, you know, you're talking about how they're trying to sound like the Beatles. Like, there are definitely elements to me where this sounds like let it be. He sounds like he's trying to sound like John Lennon. But, yeah, overall, I mean, it was – it was growing on me after, like, the third or fourth listen. But the the, the initial take was sort of a pass. Very sleepy. Very, very nice string sections, but some very odd orchestral choices in the timpani. I believe there's a song where it sounds like, I literally think they're banging on trash cans. I would guess <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's in Remembering. I'm sure they're timpanis, but they're terrible.
1: You're talking about remembering. That song That song that, is so yes.
2: terrible.
0: There's so so many remembrances of remembering.
2: I disagree with almost everything Phil just said. It did the opposite of grow on me. Clearly, they're great singers with great harmony, but the songwriting is so bland. And as James said, Asleep at the Wheel is right. I think they might have gotten it into their heads that if you just add three-part harmony to songs, you have a hook. Not so, Brothers Gibb, not so. You know, t- it takes a disco beat,
1: guys. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. here's here's the thing that I was like. Number one, we'll talk about some of these like terrible production errors, basically. That, like, I, I can't believe this is your ninth time in a professional studio and you're still making these kind of errors. Number one, we'll talk about that later. But like number two, this was supposed to be a band reformed, reinvigorated, back together. And it did not seem like they had any energy. It, it's not like... They were like, "Hey guys, let's get back together. Let's do it again. We really got to get in there. There's, do we have more to give?" It was more like Robin was like, "I can't make a living um, without you guys, and so like let's just throw a bunch of crap together here, <laughs> see if we can, you know, see if we can eke like 120 grand a year each out of this, and then we'll be pretty happy." Because he also complains about money a couple of times on this album, which, which uh, I find to be interesting. <laughs> I I have a
2: serious question. Do we know anything about the the demographic of their fan base? Like, were young people ever actually listening to this music, or was this? That's a
3: really good question. Solely
2: <laughs> for middle aged women, you know, <laughs> like beer drinking husbands, you
1: know? it's crying into their beers. I really have no idea, but you make a good point. I can't imagine like teenagers hey man we got the van my parents are away for the weekend we're gonna get a keg gonna blow a couple of jays gonna listen to israel and, you know just, this is just hang jam. out man i got this Check record out these strings out. trafalgar dude you know what i'm talking about yeah, Eight dude. naval battles dude, dude. Horatio <laughs> Nelson. All right. <laughs> so, talking specifically about how can you mend a broken heart? Like I don't hate this song, but what is the deal with that vocal affectation that he's doing right at the very beginning? I, I noticed this in like a comes bunch up of a songs. couple of
3: times. Agreed. It comes yeah. up a co- absolutely. This was yeah. on my short list.
1: I think it's Robin's this voice. This is like I think Robin just has a bad
2: voice and they were fighting.
1: I think that's Barry's voice. I, I think that's Barry's voice because Barry was listed as like the lead singer on this album, on this song. Like he wrote it and he was listed first as like the lead vocalist. And I think this is Barry Gibb before he figured out I just have to sing a falsetto all the time because this is like pre like Barry. Barry was the guy with the falsetto voice that like yeah. really was like the out front falsetto singer. I think he just didn't understand how to not do a John Lennon or like a crappy Paul McCartney impression. And, you know, he didn't really find his own. Voice
3: until halfway through the song because he would sound normal. He sounds normal once he warms up.
1: But that this is something that Adam talks about is like, you know, when you actually get to the when you actually start pushing. All the affectation has to drop away because you actually have to start thinking about hitting notes. But when you're sort of just doing the initial part of the song, you kind of do like a weird voice thing like that. I don't understand. I think, it.
2: I think it's like their baseline for what music they like is medieval balladeers. It's so goofy and dorky. And,
3: and the be- and the Beatles.
2: And the Beatles. Yeah. And
0: yeah. the Beatles. What if those
2: two things met?
0: It's like be- because essentially, it's like the song that they're. They're emulating, right? The <laughs> Belladier's meets the
1: Beatles. Yeah. They also, they write a bunch of songs about, like, historic events in a weird way. Like, Trafalgar, clearly a big historic event. Uh, as, we, as we referenced earlier, clearly the New York mining disaster of 1941. <laughs> <laughs> we, also, right, yeah, we all so remember infamous, that one. Infamous. I listened to their album Odessa as well. Which because it was listed as like, oh, Odessa was like progressive and like oh yeah, it was a real departure for the Trafalgar. The title. Well, the title track of the album, Odessa, the opening lines of the song Odessa are 14th of February, 1899. The British ship Veronica was lost (laughs) without a sign. (laughs) (laughs) They really stuck.
2: So I heard that they were known for almost never writing lyrics until they were in the studio. And so literally maybe that's they're bringing history books in the Encyclopedia Britannica totally. and leaping through it. Apparently it's them and Nirvana.
0: It's like, those are the two bands that just didn't, they would show up at the studio with no, no lyrics.
3: That all right for Nirvana.
0: Nirvana got the top end of that one. I think
2: it's fairly <laughs> obvious, right? But we should bring it up that one of the things about this song, it's a, it's a decent song in some ways. The fact that there is another, and I didn't realize this going into the album. And in fact, it took me a couple listens to realize that I knew it from Al Green. The fact that there's a cover version of the song that is so far superior, that, that, that hurts it a lot.
1: Yeah. You know, give him credit for the source material. At one of the songs later on, he mentions, you're trying to turn me into a James Brown or something. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't think anybody had any illusions that you were going to be James Brown there, Barry.
2: One more thing is that it ended up in Al Green's hands as a single. And Al Green is such a great delivery man, you know, as a singer. But I, I also read an anecdote that it was originally offered to Andy Williams before the B.G.s decided to record it for themselves. So from the whitest person on earth over to Al Green. I think that's I think it's great.
1: Andy Williams. <laughs> uh, let's back it up for just one second, because I neglected to mention this uh, coming up because I, I got a big belly laugh out of this one. We talk about like what was the number one single when an album was released. The number one single. In the United States in September 1970. Uh, September 1971 when this was released. It was almost, almost, the song Spanish Harlem by Aretha Franklin, written by Phil Spector and Jerry Lieber, two fantastic producers, fantastic songwriters. But it was kept out of the top spot by Go Away Little Girl by Donnie Osmond. <laughs> off of the album. <laughs> off of the album from You with Love, Donnie. And Written by none other than my favorite, Carol King, and her husband at the time, Jerry Goffin. Go away, little girl. We should listen to that on our own. Go away, little girl. It's uber creepy. Now, the reason it's uber creepy is not what you think. Because you hear Donny Osmond's writing a song called Go Away, Little Girl, and you're picturing, like, a man singing about Go Away, Little Girl. I listened to it, and I had to keep checking to make sure I was not listening to the wrong version. Because Donny Osmond sounds like a girl. I don't know if he was like prepubescent. He sounds like a little girl on the album.
3: It's like Jackson 5, Michael Jack. Yes. He sounds like he sounds like, yes. he sounds like voice? a little girl. 12. Or is that uh,
2: an yes. is that a pitch shift
1: situation? I, th- I think that's his voice. I think he was just one of those like young products that was out there. It was almost like Wayne Newton.
2: Oh, he's a kid.
1: Oh, I get he's it. He's a kid. He's like an actual kid. That's why it's like not as creepy. But uh yes. Donny Osmond.
3: Just goes to show you that people have always loved terrible, music. terrible, terrible music.
0: So Rob, I have to say throughout this record and like the whole time I'm listening to it, I was, I was trying to put myself in mind of an SCTV skit that I only vaguely remember that you probably have a much clearer memory of. Mm, yeah, it please. involved a guy singing from a couch and like, and possibly falling asleep, like mid song. Oh, Perry over. Como. There was, oh, yeah, that on, that it was Eugene it, right?
2: Levy doing Perry Como. <laughs> And it was like the, I, I need to stay in bed tour or something. <laughs> so the premise was He was on stage when he was like half asleep and in bed while he was singing. It's, I think,
0: I think they took a page out of that book. Maybe they saw the skit and were like, let's just try that.
1: Let's give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> now, any, any final thoughts on uh how can you mend a broken heart?
2: I actually think they have one of the more, I was really looking for something interesting musically and I, I think even the chords and the the structures of these songs were mostly pretty darn bland. The one thing I'll compliment them on on the, the whole record is the beginning of this song where it jumps up a third. I think it goes from like a D chord to an F sharp kind of feels like the key changes, even though it doesn't and it recenters because my first thought when listening to this tune was this is a really strange way to start a hit song. Like you said, the vocal affect it's like almost tuneless. Presumably they did it for this little jump up and, and harmony thing, but I think it's one of the more interesting changes, if not the most interesting change on the entire (laughs) record.
3: They came out hot.
2: They came out hot,
1: exactly. Kind of blew it in the first few seconds there. (laughs) It's not the word. They came out lukewarm. (laughs) They came out lukewarm, and then they went on to what might be the worst age song in history in terms of subject matter, Israel. Yeah, my problems with this song. If you are going to write about, like, Maybe the most storied and controversial and fought over region in all of human history. And you come up with lines that are like, where there's sand, where there's beautiful sand. Yeah, you know, you you kind of kind of feeling that's just grand. Like, that's what you have to say about Israel. What the hell, man? Extremely
2: grand. Yeah, the word Israel is at least 50% of the lyrics of this song, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah,
0: it
3: appears a yeah. foolish amount of times.
0: Personally, and, and- for me, my take on this one was, I was I was kind of blown away that, that the soporific tearjerker of an album, it's like these English guys found a way to inject some racism into it. It's like, there is, <laughs> it's like how, how can we get some racist stuff in here? It's a fucking song about Israel on <laughs> here.
2: I thought, to your point from earlier, James, I thought this one really gave me terrible elton john song vibes <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> yep asleep at the wheel elton john all the way on this one so i've
3: seen you fall so many times i'm crying for you and that's a crime
0: it's real it's real let me it's rare. With a beautiful sand,
3: yeah. You know you got a kind of kinda feel an answer. Take to your arms.
0: Let me be with you. Let me be with
1: you, Israel. Pretty bad. So this is like nineteen this is post-1967, Israel Arab War, right? So, you know, which uh, I feel yeah, like this is like, a really this is good like a, job. This is a
3: very fresh topic.
1: <laughs> well, there's like, you know, there's like, there's some serious stuff going on there. You know, like it's pre pre Yom Kippur war, but post like 1967. Yeah, 67 would
2: have been fresh on people's minds for sure.
1: Yeah, Fresh on people's minds. And what you have to say about it is like the most not only like. Uncreative lyrics, but unprovocative lyrics. It's almost like they were just like, Yeah, hey, Israel's been in the news a lot lately. Let's write a song about Israel. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, huh.
0: I mean, it's like, it really is. It's like a pastiche of the concept of writing a topical song. Oh, yeah, here's a random topic, uh, Israel. All right, go. Yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: yeah. Hmm. Uh, you're the only one, Israel. <laughs> Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> Take me into your arms and make me feel your goodness. What the fuck? What are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, Israel. I wonder. I hope. Uh, I hope that some intrepid reporter is uh, sticking a microphone in the one remaining brothers Gibb's face and asking them to justify their their stance on Israel in light of the stuff that's been happening recently. Not even not been happening recently. The stuff that has been reported on heavily recently.
2: Barry Barry's the last one left, right? Even though he's the oldest. Barry's
1: the last one left. Yeah. The Robin and Maurice died. More apparently Maurice died like suddenly and kind of out of nowhere. And then Robin died after a protracted illness.
2: They had, they had a younger brother too. He died young. I think really. It's yeah, almost Andy? like a uh, sister. I don't know what happened to the sister. I do what old. happened to the sister.
0: Faded yeah. into obscurity after that one record. Cucumber chest. <laughs> <Justin. laughs>
2: it's their swan song.
3: I think I can find something positive to say about this song. I think the strings at the end are, are very beautiful and robust, and and I love the way they come in. They're very like theatric. Uh, I'm talking maybe like two and a half, three minutes in. So it, it actually, I think, though, as you guys have started ripping this record apart, it, it to me begs a different question, which is who wrote these strings? Because they're actually quite nice and they stand out.
0: Be waiting, hey, 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 hey.
3: My oh, Israel. 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 Israel.
1: Israel. Bill Shepard A <laughs> mm. guy named Bill Shepard did the orchestral arrangement for this album
3: oh, I'm curious what some of his other works man
1: yeah. Well, so we, we did not talk directly about this, but I think it, now is a good time to bring it up. It's just sort of like the disparity in what I would consider to be the sort of contributions on this album. Because Barry Gibb uh, wrote most of the songs. Robin Gibb helped Barry Gibb write some of the songs. Maurice Gibb helped Barry Gibb write some of the songs. But uh, if you look at like the credits, you have uh, Barry Gibb on lead vocal harmony and rhythm guitar. You have Rami Gibb on lead vocal and harmony. You have Maurice Gibb on lead vocal and harmony and bass and piano and Mellotron and guitar and organ and drums on the song Trafalgar. Like it just seems like a little bit of an imbalance there. And I'm sure that, you know, Barry was like, listen, I wrote, like, do year hear the song about Israel? I wrote like, clearly I'm contributing way more to this album. Mm-hmm. But Maurice, Maurice is to be like, yeah, but I'm, I'm like playing everything. Robin and Robin was the one who wanted to go solo, the guy who did nothing but co-write some songs and sing mostly backups. Man. Oddly, people get tomatoes thrown
0: at them for decisions like that. I've heard.
2: I know we don't like love to comment on people's appearances, but Robin is also <laughs> the goofiest looking by far. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Got to get an eyeful of these Gibbs
1: Barry. I feel like. Aged well into the feathered hair look, but I think he kind of has a big head, and like the the big sort of big hair really helped him out a lot in that in that sense because I just feel like he's got a big head. Balanced out his head. True. Maurice looks like he was like by the time it got to the disco era, Maurice was like losing his hair already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Robin, yeah, Robin looks weird. Robin looks like uh he was the the less nourished of the two twins right. in the womb, yeah. maybe. But they but they all have
0: it's like their faces are like seventy or eighty percent teeth. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: like, uh, made in England, yep. man. Beautiful teeth. Big beautiful teeth. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> so anything else before we go on to quite possibly the most wistful song about divorce I've ever heard, remembering? <laughs>
2: i was
0: remembering filing some paperwork you know with my ex-wife the other day it was really wonderful really wonderful we only showed up to court we put the paperwork in there it was just hmm. you know battle over child custody that was
1: oh yeah wonderful it's like remembering (laughs) i gave you half my (laughs) stuff remembering that (laughs)
0: child support paycheck you just wrote <laughs> remembering that that was a great feeling
1: this is why i thought this is why i'm pretty sure that that weird vocal treatment before was barry because this song is definitely barry gibb and he does a really weird vocal oh, the, treatment right at the, the beginning the moment the
3: song starts they lost me like i'm talking yeah. like my second two i was
2: uh, out <laughs> well, listen i'm only referencing the wikipedia article here but this says lead vocals robin that's what made me think the opposite so are we just getting mixed up here?
1: No. Hold on. Remembering. Oh yeah. It does say lead vocals, Robin. You're right. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's clearly Barry wrote that song.
3: Yeah. Right? Songwriter Barry just was... got divorced.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, maybe it's, maybe it really was Robin in which case. It maybe really
1: was Robin. You're I mean, right. it would make much more yeah, sense. Robin. Cause
0: I mean, the, the, the I would say the thing that like really kills me about Trafalgar overall is it seems totally disingenuous is there's like, it's, you know, they're yeah. soporific. Sure. You know, that's a, maybe a flaw. I mean, I've, Love plenty of soporifics records.
2: Yeah, I'm not hearing a lot of pathos on There's here. No, no, no yeah. very
0: little pathos. They're not taking you on the journey at all. You don't feel sad listening to this record. You feel kind of like you're being confronted with the concept of sadness at a distance.
2: I, I kept with Robin, because I was picturing Robin loving these ballads and his goofy voice it kept reminding me of Holy Grail with the dude that follows around Eric Idle and is talking about all the nasty ways he's
1: going to be killed. Yes. Brave, Robin. Brave yes. Sir Robin. Robin. <laughs>
3: exactly.
0: With uh, old Sir Robin
3: came forth <laughs> from Camelot. <laughs> Well their their Wikipedia page does list them as baroque pop.
1: Bar- baroque pop.
3: Wow. Their genre their their official Wikipedia, well Trafalgar's Wikipedia genre is okay. soft rock and baroque pop.
1: Well, listen, like this this song is a mess. It's like, this- terrible. The chorus, the way the melody, like, goes down, it, first of all, it's kind of out of, I guess, Robin's range that remembering when you were my wife, like, going down, and then he goes down again, and it's like, it really robs any of the forward momentum. Like, melodies in a chorus should generally build, and the first half of this chorus is like, it goes down, and then it goes down again. I'll It doesn't really make me feel like there's any movement and I'm not going to give them the credit enough to say that like they were trying to tell a story about how like being in a divorce situation makes you feel like you're just going down and stuck in a rut and there's no forward progression. No, none of that. I think they just wrote a bad melody. That is some English uh, professor
2: level interpretation there. I don't know if they're going for that, but I just think I I think part of what you're seeing is that Robin and Barry were fighting over who was going to be the lead singer. And that's part of why Robin left to do his solo project. You know, they were fighting for ego. And I I even read that Robin had kind of established himself enough with his solo career that all he had to do was sing, but he's, he's definitely a worse lead singer. He's just worse at it.
1: Yeah. How pissed do you think he was when like Barry first sung falsetto and it just Uh, killed it on jive talk. And he's like, you son
2: of a bitch. Oh, so I heard, I heard an anecdote about that in this documentary too, that the way they discovered Barry's falsetto And landed on it was some, I can't remember what song it was, it was a later album, where he was doing some end of song vamping. And they were like, somebody just needs to get up there and and scream and tune, like, give it a shot. And he's just playing around. And then apparently it was a shocking moment in the booth. Everyone's like, oh, man, that's our new sound. So, yeah, that must have been distressing.
1: (sighs) yeah. I mean, honestly, I've been going back to some of those disco-era BGS. I was talking about this with Phil. I, I was learning How Deep Is Your Love on the Ukulele. It's great. It's a great song. The chords are great. I feel like when they sort of discovered that disco sound— they got re-energized, and this seems like they were energized at the beginning and they really were running out of steam and they just kept flogging it. You know, it's really day a day.
3: shame that Adam isn't here this week because he would have been in a really awkward position where we would have to defend some of his beliefs about pitch perfect harmony overcoming all. Because <laughs> 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 I mean, like, no doubt, no doubt, like Adam loves what was the song you just said, like How Deep Is Your how Love? Th- how deep is your love? Like, there's no that doubt. Great.
2: But, yeah, that's, a, but that's a much yeah, better song than I think any song on this record. I
0: would tell you, song Strongly. Way remember. better, yes. I, no, I put remembering above any other <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Um, Top
1: song of 71. The final thoughts on remembering before we move on to the epic, epic song, Trafalgar? Just I just want to begin forgetting, personally. Okay. Well, well, listen, we, we talked about it before with uh, you write a song about Israel. You expect there's going to be maybe some controversial lyrics, something, something profound. You write a song about Trafalgar, and you think that like this is like pivotal moment in like the history of the modern world. One of the most epic naval battles until basically like the Battle of Midway in World War II. You'd think that there would be a little bit more going on in this song than there is. But like it's pretty tame. It really doesn't get across anything of like england fighting for its very existence naval battle where they were the underdogs and excellent strategy happened to win the day and none of that comes through
2: they barely even talk about the battle in the lyrics i don't really understand well it's
0: you know the the word trafalgar stands on its own you can just say it over and over and over again (laughs) eventually
2: this is Eventually actually a standout song it. for me. I may mean, have to be. I think it's one of the better songs. It's it's a better version of this style.
1: And that's the it's the Maurice Gibb written and sung song. Maurice Gibb did almost everything on this song because they have like a lead guitar player who's listed on the album. And really the only thing that's not piano or bass or drums or singing on this is kind of like a leady guitar, which I think is this guy, Alan Kendall. So I think that this is basically like no contribution from the other Brothers Gibb.
2: You know what this one really we've mentioned the other Beatles, but what this really sounds like to me is a George Harrison tune, like an all things must pass tune. It's still not as good as the songs on all things must pass, but it has more of that vibe to me.
3: I absolutely think that there are elements of this record that remind me of all things must pass. And some of that sort of like the band ramshackle ness, like it feels like the wheels might come off, but they don't like just some of the takes feel a little more amateurish. But like not in a way that like ruins the take. Does it make sense? Yeah. But yeah, no doubt. Like they were aware of the band, all things must pass, like Dylan in the band, and pro- you know, and trying to emulate that sound.
2: Sure. Like really. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, perhaps.
0: Sure. I'd like to point out the the few moments where you can really get through the production, and you can feel that amateurness. It doesn't add any interest for me. You know, it didn't. It didn't really. You know, it didn't bring that. You know, there's usually that gleam of kind of like, oh, you know, you can feel the garage band popping through on this
2: one. I think it's because even maybe by their own admission, they were barely a band at this point. And in fact, when I heard them speak a little bit about their disco rejuvenation, their main goal, you know, going to Miami and such and living in that house was like, oh, we want to be a band. We now need a keyboard player. We have a bass player and our brother, but we now need a steady drummer and keyboard player. We want to like practice as a band. I don't get the impression that most of these songs are put together that way. So you get almost no band energy out of it.
1: Well, there's also something to be said for like the garage bandness aspect peeking through, but like not nine albums in. Like, you're nine albums in. I'm, yeah, you should be better at this by this point. Like, you, or you're basically just the middle management of music, where you sort of peaked out in your There's career th- at, like, not that high of a place, but enough that you can make a living?
3: There's obviously something, like, contextual here that I don't totally understand, because I'm looking at the top songs in 1971, right? And, you know, Three Dog Night, Joy to the World, Rod Stewart, Maggie Mae, Carol King's... uh, I can feel the earth move. I don't know the Osmonds one bad apple, but the Bee Gees tune out man of broken heart is the fifth song of the year. And that just seems crazy to me. I,
2: I think it's a pretty okay song overall. I'm not totally surprised that song is a hit, but I, I we're talking about it in context of this record. If that was the one super ballady, sad song on the record or one of three, but like every single song hits the same mark, and that is elevated songwriting by comparison to the other songs, I think. But it ain't great. I think they're definitely resting on their laurels or riding on their, their past fame.
1: But, like, you know, yes, Phil, you make sure. a really good point. Let's talk about 1971. Let's talk about just albums that were released in 1971. You have Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones, Who's Next by the Who. Who I hate, but that's a good album. Hunky Ooh, Dory, damn. David Bowie, Led Zeppelin 4. Joni Mitchell's Blue, Marvin Gaye's What's Damn. Going On, Jethro Tull's Aqualung. You have Tapestry by Carol King, which might be one of the best albums of all time. What is currently my favorite album of all time? Metal by Pink Floyd came out in 1971. Mm. Like Electric Warrior by T Rex came out in 1971. The Yes album. Come almost, on!
2: almost all those albums too that you mentioned they're all great and they all make me think of things that are pushing forward into the future. This makes me think of something that's pushing backwards. Not just in terms of their reputation and their musical history, but like you said, I think they're still referencing a, a folky simpler pop beatles 60 you know 60s era. What was it skivel S- Yeah, they're yeah, they're still a yeah, skiffle, skiffle band <laughs> that
3: Still a skiffle band. <laughs>
1: That's a that is a murderer's row of albums that came out this year. And this How Do You Mend a Broken Heart is the number five song of the year from that year. That's insane to me. It seems so. I mean, I could go on. There's so many more amazing albums that came out that year. Yeah. Bill Withers, Justice I Am came out that year. Come on. like. But
2: it must represent. I know we've been trying to reckon with these charts through the whole podcast, and it's it's a little hard to put them in context, but I just I've come to think that they don't do a great job often of representing what was what young people liked. Right? They must be about the record a buying public or some older people who aren't ready for the '70s to actually happen. Going like, I wish it was still the '60s. I wish the, the people stopped at Rubber
0: Soul. They, you know, they stopped buying organ records. I'm trying to think of like a famous organ player giving up on playing the organ. I can't even come up with it. So the author player, Roger
3: Dimery would have been twenty or twenty-one when this record came out. So maybe there was a maybe it coincided with an event in his own life that really, you know, <laughs> made him want to go down the rabbit hole of vacuous, sad bastard music.
2: Just funny you mentioned the the Robert Dimery book that we're all referencing here. I, I bought a copy of it recently, and I looked up his little review of this record. Even he agrees a song we're not going to talk about, dearest. He calls it cringy. You know, he calls yeah. it horrendous. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> In his three paragraph review for why you must listen to this, he calls one of the songs horrendous. So, you know.
0: Yeah. Dearest is horrible. Absolutely horrible.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about Don't Want to Live Inside Myself, which is, first of all, just like a really depressing title. But uh, I'm going to ask you guys, did you also get a very specific song that they stole this from right yes. away? Yes, right. Yes. I hope he gets royalties every time. Every time, helpless. Yes, by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young on Deja Vu, which came it's out exactly, the year before. It's the it's exact exactly same song. The same melody.
2: Yeah. in the verse, it's exactly it's the same.
1: Exactly the and same. And it was melody. definitely let's, on the radio when they were. You know, I
3: this. didn't hear it, but now that I've heard it, I can't unhear it. I was going to say can't this was my hear. favorite song.
1: <laughs> Cannot unhear it. It is helpless. Helpless,
3: dude. Yeah. All right. Let's let's
1: we're gonna do everybody a favor here. We're just gonna play. A clip of the beginning of this song Don't Want to Live Inside Myself Which is like, you know A hopeless title But it also doesn't get across Even the pathos that Helpless gets across And then we're going to play Helpless Right back to back And you guys can never be able to unhear it again
0: I am the searcher Of my fortune got my right
3: hand on the wheel. We got to dig, the
2: buried treasure.
0: I know exactly how I feel. There.
3: to go
1: All my changes were there
2: how did they get away with it
0: i appreciate that you're like they'll never be able to <laughs> un- hear it again as if they're going to listen to <laughs> Trafalgar again like it's like oh i have <laughs> every time I spend the BGs are about to have
1: a major resurgence because Dave Grohl is doing that whole DGs thing with Foo Fighters where they're like writing a bunch of disco songs and also covering a bunch of BG songs and that's like what their next thing is going to be I bet you BGs plays are going to go through the roof and people are going to be like which one of their 27 albums should I listen to (laughs) Uh.
0: (laughs) not Trafalgar it's like oh. Put a gold
2: star Besides now. that bit of heinous theft, I I think the <laughs> tune is okay. I mean, I, I did kind of like the tune. I have to admit. I, again, in comparison to the other songs on the record, I gave this one
1: a little plus. This is the one that I feel like they they blatantly stole "Helpless," and then they they transition into like a decent Beatles impression. And uh, Maurice Gibb does some pretty good Paul McCartney bass on it. I found that to be you know mollifying. I still couldn't get over the fact that the song was stolen, but like I enjoyed it much more so than I enjoyed Remembering or yeah. uh Trafalgar. It had a lot more for, to say. For
3: the listeners at home, can we get a definition of mollifying?
1: Mollified, uh it like, you know, it uh, calmed me down a little bit, made me feel okay. better about the situation. Yeah, placated. placated. Here we go. Okay, okay. This, this one you.
2: gave me specifically while my guitar gently weeps vibes in the chorus.
3: Don't wanna live
2: so yeah, yeah definitely watered down beatles but that was that was how it made me feel more on a production level than on a melodic level
3: some of these songs also give me like a little bit of a bowie vibe uh specifically like the drum sounds like again just like you can tell they were very aware of what was popular right and were are trying mm-hmm. to pick and choose what they thought they could use right
0: the drum sounds as we all know right are largely the product of the mixing board that you're using as well so you kind of have a the, you know, probably pretty, pretty much probably it was like product of this was the studio. Well, you like guys uh,
1: just really served me up this transition on a silver platter here. If we're ready to move on to Lion in Winter, because I have a serious problem with the beginning of this song. <laughs> all right. They do.
3: <laughs> 30... <laughs> right. Let's, let's, roll, let's, roll, let's roll
1: it. <laughs> all right. let's, let's roll the beginning. No, you got You got to know what I'm talking about first. Okay. They did 35 <laughs> seconds of just drum hits. Okay. And listen to—they had—they were in a room with like no baffling on it or something like that. Because you get this slapback sound coming off of the walls from the drum hits that is definitely not intentional. It's like boom, boom, ta-ta, boom, boom ta-ta, in the background. It's not. It cannot be on purpose. That is, this is the bad the, engineering. Is this
3: the one where the bass comes in, like, real heavy-handed, like he's slapping it, like, yeah. across the face on each note? Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. I think it's their attempt to be experimental, but it does not work. <laughs>
1: It's like that is just a rookie production mistake. And I cannot forgive a band who is on their ninth trip around the sun in a studio being like, do you not have baffling in the corners here to prevent this like horrible inadvertent reverb slapback that's coming through on these naked drum beats, drum hits that we insist on putting out for one seventh of the length of the song is just drum hits with nothing else.
2: Now let's roll it.
1: Now let's roll it. Yes.
2: I got it. The part, <laughs> I mean, that, that part is pretty bad. My, my feeling was that it broke up the monotony of the record, but it was an ex- a failed experiment, for sure. <laughs>
3: I, this song sort of, like, didn't, like, hit my radar uh, on, the, like, the first, like, three listens. I listened to this record three times before I went back and looked at this, you know, the sort of short list that we talked about, you yeah, know, we, we knew we would discuss. So this didn't really, like, make my radar, I guess, the back half of the song. did. I actually kind of like what I... I Presume is Barry Gibb's vocal performance at the sort of back half of the song, like he's really bringing it home. Hold But on. dude,
1: his vocals are
3: terrible. I
2: Let's keep that up because oh, the yeah. end of this, he's attempt. Yeah, he gets. He's tempted to go somewhere <laughs> yeah, with it. The I, he was, does a lion, every
1: every the I was a lion. Every course, every course doesn't.
2: Voice crack. I wrote
1: down, What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yes. No, I had timestamps <laughs> for all of them because I was just like going through it and being like, Timestamp 135. Oh, this is really bad. And it's like, Oh, wait. Oh, also, I guess timestamp at 255. This is even worse somehow. Oh, I don't think he
3: really goes off the rails till three minutes. but <laughs> I'm I'm I kind of like the spaces in, the in the between.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm at the end of the song.
3: For miles around. Yeah. Anyway, so so when you guys said hey listen to this song right you know like yeah yeah okay cool sure and it came on and like I had just blocked out the whole drum intro so like I, I thought it was a joke I wondered is this the whole track four minutes of drums like I, I looked down at 27 seconds and was like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> and there was more where that came from <laughs> <laughs>
1: so bad wow it's like you're not gonna go doo, doo, falsetto, doo, 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 doo. Barry Gibbs, doo, doo, doo. the yeah. man known for falsetto, doesn't go he falsetto know. on he that note. He can't hit. He hadn't
2: accessed it yet. Yet he, he didn't have the code. <laughs> yeah, he, had he un- unlocked unlocked uh, not
3: unlocked it. Not enough XP. There is that note in the chorus, though. He just can't get that. Yeah, there's like
0: several. <laughs> there's several in every chorus. And this this gives me hope, though, that I might unlock my falsetto <laughs> someday. You know it's just been it's been. I'm just years gonna guess.
1: Based upon the fact that it was like all disco based, that like you have to do a lot of cocaine, and it just changes your nasal cavity in a way that all of a sudden you're just like, "Why well, I can do falsetto like whistling? All right, this is great." Maybe
3: maybe he didn't really have
1: a septum, <laughs> and that uh, increased
3: uh, airflow. Yeah. Possible. it could be the
0: teeth. <laughs> it teeth. Teeth. just resonated. So, all right,
1: so back to back to the subject matter of this song. This is a song where he's complaining about money. <laughs> like, <laughs> is it? i like yeah, okay, so Lion in Winter. I'm a lion with no crown. You want to make me a big man, a star on a screen, some kind of James Brown or something in between. But when I look for money, you smother me in charms. I can't live on glory when you're bending both my arms. That's the opening core, the opening verse of the song. He's clearly just being like, you're not giving me enough money for the songs that I wrote. Yeah. You know? Uh. You're living in a cave, man. Right. Upon your marble throne. You think to own the heavens, but you gotta be alone. Maybe this is like after his like gigantic divorce payout that he just had to do. <laughs> and he's like... <laughs>
2: At least there's some lyrics here. At least they tried. I feel like this is more of a poem than almost all the other songs on this record.
0: Right. I think my overall comment on the lyricism was it was like it was written by a 12-year-old. Yeah. (laughs) A 12-year-old with money problems. (laughs) It's
3: like a second
0: I mean... Just the record overall It's like it was It's like it was conceived Except for the strings so I feel was, strongly you know,
3: About the strings Yeah no no no
0: I mean you know The arrangements The you know The vocal harmonies None of that is 12 year old stuff The lyrics 100% <laughs> Not a lot effort
1: on the lyrics Definitely not a lot of effort No so.
0: There's a lot of rhyming There's a lot of crappy
1: rhyming There's a lot of phoned in A lot of You know Disingenuous I remember, Sadness This is when I was younger I was trying to woo some girl And I wrote a poem for her it was really not great. And uh, I showed my older sister and she was just like, hey, listen, man, if you're going to write a poem for a girl, you got to think about the rhymes. You can't just say the most obvious rhyme every time because it's pretty obvious that you didn't work that hard on this. (laughs) Like, you got to think of the non-obvious rhymes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. To make it even worse, yeah. I was doing an acrostic with all the letters in their name. Just wow, <laughs> yeah, it's it pretty bad. It's pretty bad. That's, are we yeah. gonna
2: vote on this record or what? <laughs>
1: oh my god! That, <laughs> one one final comment. "Line in Winter" was my favorite song on the album. With all the problems that I had with it, it was my favorite song on the album because it felt the most real of any of the songs of the album I feel like Barry Gibbs actually pissed off about money and I feel like they're really trying for something here everything else I got nothing below just to skim the surface of a topic they're like well Barry you just got divorced you should probably write some songs about that oh okay I guess we can do that um, uh, yeah Israel's in the news we're about that I don't know like uh, we're British Trafalgar was cool or something I don't know Let's we'll do that um, this one I actually felt like yeah he really, he was really pissed off about the fact they didn't have enough money
3: I like don't want to live inside myself until you pointed out that it was a cover song. It's a cover song.
2: <laughs> yeah. I Trafalgar's is the one that got kind of stuck in my head, although it's totally airy and kind of has no depth. I would agree with that. But I my number my
0: number one cut is definitely remembering.
1: remembering. I just every time I every time I hear the title, I just think of the the, the treatment of remembering that they give. It's so terrible. It's. <laughs> It's like, uh, Rob, you always talked about how your dad would like refer to Daniel Day-Lewis as he's always acting. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. so dramatic. That was, I got that sort of like, drama. <laughs> <laughs> it's always remembering. Yeah. Uh, so, Jimmy, Jimmy Jam, what do you think? Does this album make the cut? Is this on the list of 1,001 albums you must hear before you die? Let's hear the verdict. I consider this album completely inessential. Short and sweet. No more to say than that. I like it. Let's move on. Phil, what do you think?
3: This record is not necessary, not required listening. That said, I would say that it did sort of remind me to do a bit of a, a soft dive into the Bee Gees catalog, which is, I think, worth diving into.
0: The Bee Gees made some good music. This is not good music.
3: Yeah, don't start here. Don't start here.
1: They didn't hit their stride until like album twelve or
3: thirteen.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: That's not sarcasm. That is right. actually true. 13 times the charm. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what is your verdict? So I am we got a zero. From, we got a zero for two so far.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a no for me as well. I think this choice for Robert Dimery's book is truly odd, kind of similar to the 461 Ocean Boulevard, because I do suspect that the Bee Gees did had good music. They have so much material. I don't think you should go your entire life without listening to some Bee Gees. That seems reasonable to me. But this just seems like a really strange, inessential place to get that information into your ears. So it's it's a no for me. Hand it over to somebody like Al Green.
1: I bet you if you were to ask the Bee Gees if this belongs in the 1001 <laughs> albums, they'd be like, no, no, it does not. Are you kidding me? We have many better albums than this. James, you, uh, when we first reached out to you about this, and you'd like sh- you listen to the album, you shot the text back. It's just like, I could definitely go on my entire life without spinning this turd i was right there with you buddy right there with you i'm not like this isn't one of those like i 461 ocean boulevard i was like i'll never get this time in my life back but at least i have something that i now can like reference as a like a standard bearer for hate and this is like this when you get to that point it's just completely inessential completely forgettable i thought overall uh I had to try harder to get through this album than they had to try to make this album. That's that's not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. So there you have it. Sorry, remaining brother Gib. We are (laughs) 0 for 4. 0 for 4 on uh, your album Trafalgar, making it onto the 1001 albums we must hear before we die. Oof. Better Excited. luck next time.
2: Excited to move on.
0: It's a twelve-inch single, essentially. It's, yeah,
1: as as Phil has mentioned previous times, like save me a couple of bucks at a yard sale because I definitely would not buy this, no matter what bargain bin it is in. I'm not buying this one. <laughs>
3: yeah, this isn't this isn't worth a dollar. I don't.
0: I nope. Honestly, I think the cover would have killed me <laughs> on this one.
1: It's better than every Steely Dan cover in the entire catalog. So. <laughs> right
0: but that's like this is the magic steely Dan. you know it's good so it's bad. almost like an
1: inverse relationship between how bad the cover is and how good the album is i don't think that's uh, true i think Asia's covers all right yeah Asia's just covers pretty it's, it's okay it's okay so here's the real question i know was on everybody's minds the listeners thank you so much for sticking with us all the way through to the end here because i know you're eagerly awaiting what are we going to do next week i have the albinator 5000 here Got that bad boy primed and ready to go. Let's spin the wheel and see what are we going to examine next week. Drum roll, please. We will be doing The Zombies Odyssey and Oracle. I feel like I am excited for this song, for this album. I don't quite know why. Why?
3: Yeah, do we know what, like any of the hits that the are on this are generally record?
1: Good. That's that's what I'm saying. The zombies are generally good, but I don't know any of the songs on this album from the title. Maybe there's like, like you know,
3: they tell did or the, no. What,
1: the, hmm, let's see. Let's let's pull up their discography. And
3: yeah, no, nothing's ringing boom. a bell. Boom boom.
1: boom, boom. Well, wow. <laughs> look forward to next week diving into this one. Oh, this oh, has time, of the, of, yeah, time, oh, of, the time of the season. Yeah, time of the season. Okay, there we go. Is this
0: is the critic that wrote this book? like an actual music critic or is this just like something some guy wrote it's like i, I think
2: not only is he a critic but he didn't even write most of the reviews it's like a team of people <laughs> it's definitely a sham
1: <laughs> Well, in all honesty, like, what does it take to be classified as a critic i can talk shit about music clearly for an hour we can sit around and talk shit about music are we official critics at this point i think we might i'm gonna update my resume i think i might get to put music critic as a line item on that yeah, gotcha. in. Yeah. Oh well, I'm excited for Zombies Odyssey and Oracle. It's a little bit of a highfalutin name. Uh, let's see if the album lives up to it. Until then, listen to that album. We will be dissecting it. You definitely want to have listened to it by then. But uh, thank you so much for listening to our very insightful rantings and ramblings about this incredibly mediocre Bee Gees album. Uh, Until next week, I have been Tom. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. I'm James, I
3: guess. (laughs) Are you sure? All
1: right, people. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for your time. And as always, keep on booshing on.